Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of knowing why you believe what you believe, so that you'll be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about that hope that you have in the totality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is coming again to do. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we are on this journey through the landmark Christian dogmatics of Dr. Francis Pieper, a monumental series of books devoted to the belief that when God speaks, he does so in order that we would speak his word back to him. The sound doctrine isn't just a set of right answers to be kept on the shelf or a pipe dream somebody has in their mind about what God might have said, but it's the effect that happens when scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone point you to Christ alone as life's real answer, the salve we so desperately need in this age of darkness and this veil of tears. It's just like St. Paul exhorts us. He says, hunger for the truth, Christian. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. For the time is coming, he warns, when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will turn aside to suit their own desires, gathering around them a great number of teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. But you, however, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, and so encourage others. I have as my guest today, Pastor Brian Flammy of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and his cohort, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, also of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and the author of the It's an Okay Book, Has American Christianity <laughs> Failed? Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Glad to have you back on the show again. Great to be here. Happy to be here. So we are continuing with the idea of religion from Dr. Pieper's point of view, and, and he's been, spent a lot of time distinguishing the Christian religion from the world religions, even in the definition of the term uh, religion itself. And there's this old argument kind of trying to shift and twist the meaning of the word religion to, to make room for Christianity. And so there are these various things that religion is man attempting to have a relationship with God or religion is man trying to become a better person. But uh, Dr. Pieper says, well, that's one of the two religions that there are that all the religions of the world fall into is man trying to have a relationship with God by making himself better. But then Christianity stands radically apart from this as a religion of, of grace alone of God deciding to have a relationship with men to make them better as a free gift. And that's kind of what brings us to where we are today. But he's had some pretty pretty hefty words against these other religions. He, he calls them false. And he's, he's quite clear that not all paths lead to the same, the same God, as it were. And now today he's going to open us up with a, another similar kind of concept. He says, all men who seek to placate placate God by their efforts, find that their personal relation to God is one of fear, of hopelessness, and despair, resulting from an evil conscience, from the awareness of God's wrath. And when I hear that, I mean, to me, that just means anytime I'm trying to justify myself, since I'm going to fail, ultimately, since my conscience can't actually be cleaned by me, I'm left with wanting to hide from who the true God is. Yeah, this is really great. I mean, because so, you know, Peter's riffing on this idea that people say, well, look, uh, we have a singularity in religion, you know, so we just say you guys have, might have different flavors of religion, but religion is all the same. And it's all about a personal relationship with the deity. And Peter says, well, OK, let's concede the point. Uh, it's it's all about a personal relationship with the deity, but but the personal relationship that the Christians have with the deity is very very different than people who don't have Christ, because apart from Christ, all we can have from God is anger, all we can have from God is wrath. That's all we deserve from God. In fact, it's in the end, all we'll have uh, when when everything's said and done. That's all that'll be left from God. And it's, I mean, I think uh, people, I mean, he's jabbing here, but I think it's in a funny way. He says, if you are trying to appease God's anger or make God happy, placate God by your own efforts, your personal relationship is one of fear. It's one of hopelessness and it's, and it's one of despair. That's all that, that's the only place you can get because apart from the gospel, that's all that is left. God's judgment. And he argues this, by the way, and I think there's an important point in the text. He argues this point, not from experience but rather from Scripture. Uh, the Scripture tell us this, that all we can have from God is His wrath. It's hard to have a personal relationship with the judge 
while you're in the courtroom uh, that that is one in which you're you're trusting, right? That you're trusting the judge just wants to to be good to me. That's what he is. It's what he's here for. You just don't have that relationship. Yeah, this is good to think about. Uh, uh, that peepers, like uh, Wolf Mueller was trying to say, uh, that that peepers, you know, answering the how we think about this definition of religion according to what Scripture teaches. But uh, this definition of Scripture has its origin in an existential place, right? I mean, so you potentially could fulfill this, uh, 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 find validation for this definition of religion if I uh, feel or uh, I perceive or have some sort of awareness of the deity, right? Uh, and so by uh, bringing in scripture against, uh, uh, you know, to, to answer the question, already Peeper is sort of taking a step back and saying, well, we'll play with this definition of, of religion, but really uh, we need to... Uh, see what scripture says about this as uh, has been established earlier on in the dogmatic. The word existential is kind of a, kind of a challenging word. It was more popularly in use a hundred years ago than it is now. But I think you're onto something there with now we just say personal relationship, right? That that's, but that's really when, when a Christian says I have a personal relationship with Jesus, they're talking about an existential reality. I mean, you want to kind of tear that apart a little bit? Oh, yeah, definitely. So when we say the word existential, what we mean by that is uh, we're talking about those things that present themselves that we're aware of uh, uh, immediately. So I know how I feel right now. I'm either happy or sad. That's an existential reality for me. You know, in the same way, religion is being defined such that if I have some sort of feeling, if I have some sort of awareness uh, that it's itching in the back of the mo- my mind that there is a God and I have some sort of happy or sad relationship with him, and then that's sufficient, you know, to fill up this definition of uh, religion. Uh, Peeper, of course, isn't happy about this. Uh, Peeper knows what Jesus teaches about the heart of man, <laughs> how sinful it is, how corrupt it is. And so for Peeper, he's already put our anchor into the words of Scripture. Uh, as something objective outside of us that that that's necessary for us to to worship the same God, right? But 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 if you want to play in this realm of existential reality as and and forego and ignore what's outside of yourself, uh, then things get really fuzzy really quick, and soon you can you know play with these huge categories of religion and and uh, good and bad and 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 uh, the the only measure of these things is what I actually find in myself. The danger of that phrase, personal relationship, then, even for the Christian to use it in terms of talking or being connected to Jesus, is that they're borrowing it from a different view of religion, a a philosophical view of religion that isn't necessarily Christianity. And it's important into Christianity that I would have some sort of, like you said, immediate or felt presence of Jesus apart from the actual relationship with Jesus he establishes by means of his scriptures, by means of his word and the various things his word establishes in this world. And so personal relationship, existentialism, or maybe we could use the word mysticism as well, all oh, of yeah. this kind of brings us back to this this God of hopelessness. If, if my life with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is reliant upon my feeling Jesus present smiling at me every moment of every day— I'm back in the same place. I'm in a place of fear, hopelessness, and despair because, well, personally, I, I just don't have that. Right. Well, maybe and maybe not. This is where I think uh, uh, the modern person might be able to say to Peeper, well, Peeper, uh, you're really begging a question. Uh, the fact of the matter is I feel that my God is pure love, that there's no room in this God for uh, for anger and and wrath and punishment uh, I don't feel despairing when I think about my God that I come in contact with in my own self. Uh, but then again, I, I, I would say that because Peeper has already thrown his anchor into the Holy Scriptures and because Peeper is looking essentially not within, he's giving us a view from without, you know, outside of the immediacy of my felt experience or something like that, uh, then Peeper would be able to answer this question pretty well. Uh, he would say that, uh, instead of uh, uh, relying only on what you think God is, actually see what your God is, right? So what is uh, uh, what is a God? It is that which you fear and you love and you trust. And even if you find a person who says, well, I feel like my God is pure love, surely they are doing works to appease something, to make up for their guilt and their shame 
and uh, the sins that they have committed against uh, themselves and others. Uh, and that, and where you find those works of the law being executed and being offered, there you will find not the idea of the God that they think they have, but their true God, and it is an idol. Right, surely they fear something. You know, oh, God's love, he's nothing but love, but then you watch how you actually live, and there's something you're afraid of, and you're trying to make it go away, and you're using your works to do it. And ultimately, right. then, that's that's your God. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it, I think when, uh, when, we talk, when we speak with people who, who are convinced of their sort of existential God, it's it's important to draw their eyes to the and and their hearts to the reality that they are engaging in works in futility. They are trying to make an appeasement that cannot be made, and then you try to unmask the idol that they're doing that for. I mean, it could be anything, right? Uh, that uh, you you have the climate justice folks out there who are always trying to offer up the 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 sacrifices of carbon credits to appease the, the uh, goddess earth or something like that. I mean, but that's just one example. You could think of a dozens of other things, right? It, like in the, uh, for the quest for social justice, uh, a person is willing to make reparations and, and uh, uh, feel guilt because of their privilege and all this other stuff. Uh, but ultimately at the end of the day, the God that they're making their uh, sacrifice of works to will never be satisfied. And so that they are left actually in the same place that Peeper is, is, is saying, in a place of fear and despair and hopelessness. It may not be entirely connected, but I was listening this morning to a podcast called Hardcore History, which is a guy named Dan Carlin. He does all sorts of stuff about various historical events, and I find it very fascinating. But he was talking about the League of Nations and how coming out of World War One. The League of Nations was developed in the belief that we just never wanted to have the Great War happen again. And there was a firm conviction that the path to this, the way to achieve this, was through disarmament. So if we can get rid of all the weapons, get everybody to kind of have less weapons, then we're unlikely to have war ever show up again. And and what happened was the very opposite of that. They were unprepared for uh, Germany and Italy when they just decided, well, we're going to we're gonna keep our weapons, we're going to make more weapons, and we're going to attack you. Uh, and, and what you had... and it, why this make me think of this is that you you have this belief that through these works we're going to achieve some sort of justice, some sort of justification of this age, but ultimately it's impossible because you have eventually evil refusing to be justified, refusing to come along and play nice with everybody else. And then the, the mystery of Christianity's uh, proclamation of the law is that you find this isn't just everybody else's problem, there's a problem inside your own heart. Right. Exactly. There's this, I mean, Pieper, his basic doctrine of Christianity is what he calls the vicarious satisfaction. And that it goes in two different directions. One, it's that God's wrath is so burning that it takes the sacrifice of God himself to appease it. And the other is that the devil is such a tyrant that it takes the victory of the son of God to destroy him. Now, so that satisfaction can only be accomplished by God. If we are trying to accomplish it ourselves, two things happen. Uh, one, the wrath of God is never appeased. And two, the, the devil's anger is never brought to an end. So that that satisfaction is never actually satisfied and it becomes an endless sacrifice. That's where you get these kind of cliches that are helpful where, where you say the false gods always demand human sacrifice. Uh, that The idols are never satisfied with the gifts that we come to offer. And so you see someone, anyone, apart from Christ, trying to trying to make satisfaction, trying to justify themselves. And it's, and it's, it's always a treadmill. There's never a finish line. There's, it's, the satisfaction is never accomplished. And so there must be, in the end, what Pieper says, fear, hopelessness, and despair. I remember also, I mean, I'm, it seems like I hear various gurus, um, self-help people, uh, Oprah Winfrey comes to mind as one example, who every couple of weeks it's, I finally found it. I found the piece of information, the secret knowledge that's going to gonna help me ascend to my existential, my related life with the, the deity that I believe in. I'm so excited. I got to share it with you. And then three weeks later, I found it. I finally found it again and again. And it's just, they're always on the verge of the new discovery. It reminds me of what uh, Paul says again to, to, I believe it's in Timothy, um, always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And this is, we're dancing around this next quote, uh, you know, the reason for this unhappy relationship relation is that the attempt to reconcile God through works is doomed to failure, but maybe there. So Brian, you, uh, Wolfmuller just answered this is doomed to failure because we need, <clears throat> we need an atonement that we can't make because we don't have it in ourselves. I mean, is that, is that what he's getting at? Yeah. I think the picture for this, by the way, that I always like to go back to is the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden with the fig leaves. 
So Adam and Eve see that there's something wrong. They see that they're naked and they, and they know that they need to, that that is a problem. So they go and they sew fig leaves together and they make clothing for themselves. And they think in that moment that they've fixed the problem until the text says they hear the sound of God walking in the garden and they run and they hide. They look at the fig leaves and they say, oh, this isn't going to work. Now, this is most religions. This is every religion apart from Christianity. The idea that we can cover our own sin and our own shame and make things right with our own efforts. These are these are all fig leaves. And it stands up as long as we don't hear the footsteps of God, as long as we don't hear the preaching of the law. Well, but I'm as I... soon as the Lord comes along, we realize that it's inadequate. And, and what does it take to cover them? It's amazing to me that after... The Lord uh, kind of after he restores Adam and Eve, he doesn't restore their nakedness, but rather he takes an animal and kills it and sheds the blood and covers them with the skin and and shows that the sacrifice that he's going to make is going to is going to be the thing that covers their shame. There is no covering for our sinfulness apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So everything else is going to be the failed attempts of sewing together fig leaves and our and our own works. And it, and it only stands up as long as we don't hear the voice of God, as long as the Lord is not near near us with his holiness. When the blood of animals doesn't stand up apart from the voice of God being connected to it, right? So that is because God himself is the one who's handling those animals at that time, uh, scraping the skin off. And I, I don't imagine he spent time tanning the leather. I think he just took that bloody carcass and he just draped it on him. So here you are, you're standing with this this furry blood all over you, but he's saying, I'm covering you now, and that's enough. And that proleptically is pointing forward to, it's, it's, it's an image of Jesus' own blood covering us. The blood of bulls and goats is not enough. But now we have in this New Testament revelation the fullness of this, that at the Lord's Supper, we're literally getting the body and blood of Christ as a covering, again, empowered by God's word by means of the bread and wine. But the same reality, right, that that we must have a new man in place of the old one. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so Adam and Eve, you know, there they are wrapped in these kind of still warm uh, the bloody skins and and Adam and Eve would say to the Lord, "Is this what it takes to cover our shame?" And and the Lord can say, "No, it's more, yeah. it's more than that. It takes the death of, it takes my own death to cover your shame." Imagine this how, is just pointing you to that. How horrifying that must have been too. It's like they didn't know what death was yet. They they knew that they could have it happen. They've been warned, you know, that on the day you will surely die. They, I mean, they haven't died yet. They've never seen anything like this. And now this animal, which Adam had named, right? I mean, he, was it his pet? Did he care? He had to care. And now God's like, well, here's what it means. Oh, what a what a horrifying reality. And and to think, you know, compare this to this next quote with from Peeper again, no man has ever eased his evil conscience through his works. Uh, what kind of conscience Adam must have walked out of the garden with that day and how little we're able by whatever we would build. We see right away uh, Cain trying to placate his conscience by murdering his brother. We see uh, the, the the men of uh, Babel trying to placate their consciences by building a tower to the sky. It's just it becomes a, a catalog of conscience killing that eventually the most we can do is we can sear it. We can we can ignore it. but We can't actually heal it. You know, Luther, in the, his when he's uh, doing his greater commentary in Galatians, goes back and in one section does a whole history of the world, uh, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, going to Cain and Abel all the way through. And he basically says, this was a battle between those who understood justification by faith and those who tried to be justified by works. So why did Cain kill Abel? Because he didn't understand the doctrine of justification by faith. Why did the world fall apart at the time of Noah? Because only Noah understood justification by faith and nobody else did. Now, this is how Paul sees all of history and it's how Peeper sees all of all of history as well, all of religion, all of confession. It's those who understand the vicarious satisfaction and those who do not. And this is the um, this becomes the history of the world. Those who have a good conscience by the blood of Christ and those who are trying to have a good conscience by every other means, but it never comes there. It never, the, the evil conscience cannot be made good uh, by the works of the law. So scripture states that all people without exception, he's talking about those with no, without the conscience, without the vicarious atonement, have no hope and are without God in the world. And I, I want to reemphasize, we've done this several times now, how uh, offensive how hurtful a comment that is, that if you are not in Jesus, no matter what you think or say about what God you might have, the best you got's a demon. 
It's the, the strongest thing you might have, or you got nothing. You got vapor and thin air. You're without God in the world, and you have no hope. And Christianity makes no balk about this. This is this is intense. This is a massive claim. And but for the resurrection of Jesus being a historical event to prove the fact, I'm not sure we have a leg to stand on with this claim. I mean, who who are we to claim this? But we're not claiming it, right? God himself is claiming it, and he's making that definition in the person of Jesus. That's Jesus' claim. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And and this is all then getting back to that original state of being without hope. So even the Christian initially is in this uh, same problem. And even by by flesh now, I still carry it around with, it, with me, like a, a chain around my neck of being a hopeless man uh, without God in the world, apart from these words about Jesus. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's kind of funny. All the idolaters uh, seek one thing, that is to have a God with them in this world <laughs> so that uh, they could have something uh, uh, to appease their conscience with by offering their works, whatever those works might be. And the idols, who knows what they're going to look like. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still what they desire to have a God who is gracious to them in this world, but they'll never find it. Uh, it's great that we have the name of Jesus that's given to us in Isaiah chapter 7, Emmanuel, right? Uh, that he is God with us. And he is God with us, not according to our works, as the pagans would try uh, to, to achieve, right? They, to By making an idol and then making sacrifices to the idol. But he is Emmanuel for, for his own sake, uh, for the sake of his faithfulness to the promises that, that Wolf Mueller was talking about, that were first given to Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, that was then given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, it was the uh, the center of, of hope and and peace for all of Israel until Jesus came. You started off right there with something really fascinating. Idolatry is an attempt to keep the first commandment wrongly. Isn't that weird? Or, it's, or it's or an perhaps attempt. more so than that, idolatry is a fake uh, incarnation. You know, the devil heard the Lord speak the promise to Adam and to Eve, uh, saying that the seed of the woman will crush your head. And it seems like ever since that point, uh, uh, the devil has been trying to come up with his own versions of the incarnation <laughs> uh, to steal away the fear, the love, and the trust of the people of Israel, and in fact, to keep the rest of the world in darkness. Uh, that the devil is always putting out there, oh, look, here's a God who could be with you. Here's a God who can love you and take care of you. Uh, his name is Ball. Shake hands. It's going to be okay. Never, yeah. you know, never realizing that, you know, pulling the wool over the Israelites' eyes, that Baal is going to consume them and devour them and destroy them. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, uh, God holds out the true incarnation for us, you know, that uh, until we see the scriptures fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the babe of Bethlehem, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, nothing else can do and nothing else will do. Luther says that the Devil says, don't listen to God's words. Words don't have meaning. But then he fills the world with his own yammering and squawking. And, and so now you're saying as well, you know, the devil says you don't need God. Uh, you don't need an incarnation. But wait, here's one for you. So Justin Martyr uh, makes this point when he writes his uh, apology to the emperor concerning the fact that the the, the idols are, are but uh, versions of the incarnation uh, 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 false gods that the devil is putting forward uh, to give the pagans uh, false hope and false comfort. Uh, uh, that Justin Martyr is is keen to uh, tell the pagans, hey, look, you guys have been duped. You think that you can find a, a, a god to take care of you in this life, but if in fact you, you take back these gods who are with you in the world, uh, if you break apart the idols and look what's and find out what's behind them, you'll see nothing but a demon. And not just a demon who wants to be friends with you. No, a demon who actually wants to destroy you, who dra to drag you into hell with him, you know, where, where to take you into his own doom. And that's Peeper's next uh, statement. Our many sacrifices do not in the least alter our personal relation to God, for these sacrifices are not offered to God, but to devils. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. I'm here with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor Brian Flamley of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and we will be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Rich Robertson, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Are you a rostered church worker with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? 
As a financial partner with the LCMS, we understand your unique calling and desire to stay focused on ministry, which is why you can look to us as a faithful partner when it comes to your financial needs. Our borrowing solutions allow rostered church workers and ministries to expand their spiritual work now and in the future. Learn more at www.lcef.org. Recently graduated from high school or college and looking for a chance to serve a community in need while sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? Lutheran Young Adult Corps may be for you. Lutheran Young Adult Corps provides opportunities for long-term, full-time service for 10 weeks through the summer or 10 months over the school year in places like St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Boston. Find out more about Lutheran Young Adult Corps by finding us online at lcms.org slash Y-A-C-O-R-P-S or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lutheran Y-A Corps. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. What if I told you that a tornado was going to happen tomorrow, right where you live? That it would touch down at exactly 3.17 p.m. and I told you the exact path it would take. You would, of course, prepare. You would talk with your loved ones and you'd make a plan today. It's true, I can't tell you a tornado will strike tomorrow, but shouldn't you have a plan anyway? Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. In the early 18th century, the first edition of the Basket Bible was considered one of the most beautiful Bibles ever produced. Printed by John Basket, the leading publisher of English Bibles in England and Scotland. Described in grand terms for the beauty of its hand-tooled cover, typeface, lavish decoration, and quality vellum. Unfortunately, the Bible contained a number of typographical errors, earning the nickname Basketful of Errors. No doubt in part referring to the words at the top of the page where Luke 20 verse 9 introduces Jesus' parable of the vineyards as Jesus' parable of the vinegar. Forever After branding the most beautiful Bible ever produced as the Vinegar Bible. Engage with the Bible in all the stories surrounding this book of books over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk talking with Pastors Brian Wolfmuller and Brian Flammy of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado about Francis Pieper's definition of religion, distinguishing Christianity from all other religions strictly in the blood sacrifice, the atonement of Jesus Christ, which leads to the idea of grace alone, and making the point that no matter what we would do to try to please God apart from this or other than this or on our own, our many sacrifices never alter the negative personal relationship, the negative feeling we have from God in our own sin and death and destruction that we see racking the the history of the world right now. But in the end of this, we're not even really reaching God at all. We end up unwittingly worshiping the devils. And uh, Pastor Flaming, you had had a text from Isaiah you wanted to kick, kick off with, or was it Deuteronomy? You know, in Isaiah, I was looking at chapter 41, uh, that the Lord enters into a conversation with Israel. Uh, and Israel, of course, has this terrible re- uh, 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 habit, just like we do, of limping along between two different opinions, of fearing and loving and trusting in God above all things, of worshiping the, the, the Lord of promise, and of worshiping the devil and his demons that set up idols, you know. And it's interesting how the Lord uh, uh, says, okay. Well, let, let's let's talk about your idols. What have they ever given you? What have they ever done for you? Uh, let's see, have have they ever given you a, a moment of life, or have they ever given you a uh, 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 an answer to any of your prayers, really? And the Lord says this, you know, the Lord says that I am the one who actually says to Zion uh, uh, that I give you good news that I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. I send you my prophets to teach you and to to preach to you uh, uh, an atonement, not 
by your works, you know, that you don't have to placate the idols with your works in order uh, to gain forgiveness and uh, peaceful conscience in life. Instead, I give you my prophets who give you my uh, promises, you know, that the seed of the woman is coming, that David's son and David's Lord will come and establish an eternal kingdom. Not for your sake, not because you're so awesome and that your works are so glamorous, but rather because I'm faithful to my word, you know. Uh, and so when the contest is set up, at least in Isaiah chapter 41, between the idols and the uh, between the idols and the Lord and his word, uh, the Lord points to the fact that I am the one who preaches good news. The idols can't do that. They can never do that. They always seek. Uh, 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 they always demand something from you. Your works. It made me think of their chapter forty-four as well, where he says, "Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appoint an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come, and what will happen. Fear not." And he turns and he turns it to gospel. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? So first, it's nobody's like me. You can't tell what's going to happen, but uh, I've been telling you what's going to happen. And he is talking about salvation. There is no rock besides himself. There's a couple of other texts that, that just would apply here. So uh, Deuteronomy 32, 17, uh, which says, um, to go back to verse 16, they provoked God, the Lord, to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. You've forgotten the God who fathered you. This was a phenomenal text. And then, and then my favorite I just found here in uh, Psalm 115, which I think is really kind of the text that Isaiah is preaching on. He says uh, with verse four, the idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their, through their throat. Those who make them are like them. Right. So is everyone who trusts in them. So that you become like the God that you worship. So, we, so the idols, you know, they, they have mouths, they don't talk. They have eyes, they don't see. And you worship the idols and you become both mute and deaf uh, completely impotent. You, you, you worship death. You, you die. You, you know, you worship the demons. You, you become that which is ugly and 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 wicked. And you are marked by blindness. And uh, I mentioned the seared conscience earlier as well. Unable to call a thing what it is because of your need to pretend it is something different all the way into the grave. And Paul also says in First Corinthians chapter twelve, he talks about how we Christians were also. Like this in our flesh, led astray by mute idols, but he would not have us now, as Christians, retain that cup of demons, right? That we are to be segregated from this religion and brought into the religion of grace. That is, of course, a free gift in Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of this kind of still wrapped around this same idea that our, our sacrifices, our efforts end up making these idols, having to protect them, and then failing with them, while on the other side, God is holding out to us a, a totally different way. In spite of all of his religious endeavors, Pieper says about us, the heathen's personal relationship to God is and remains a relationship of fear and despair. And that's where, you ever notice how, you know, once you have an idol, you got to protect it, right? So if, if, if I have a lot of money, like everyone thinks that's the answer and right? I'll, I'll have a huge bank account. But as soon as you have a huge bank account, even if it's just like 5,000, 10,000 bucks in the bank, you start learning about inflation and how the government's going to basically take it away through monetary policy and how you got to find a way to make at least 3% interest. Otherwise you're losing money every year. Next thing you know, this idol that you thought was going to keep you safe is something you've got to protect. You've got to defend it, right? So you spend, you set up these, these worship centers and then you got to go out and defend the gods you think are going to help you. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that, that you had to make 3% interest. Yeah, that's inflation every year, man. Money. You're losing 3%. It's crazy. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, you know what? It, it, it's interesting also that uh, just like the Israelites like to limp along between the worshiping the idols and worshiping the Lord, uh, so we sometimes fall into this trap of thinking that, well, works are works, right? They've got to be. Uh, uh, they've got to make uh, do something for the Lord, even if they're maybe done half-heartedly for the idols. At least they have to have some merit in and of themselves. Uh, but I, I, I'm glad that people brings us back to the idea that no, the works are not sort of the uh, the center of this idea about religion. Rather, there is a religion of grace, and uh, uh, and there is a religion of works. 
uh, that with the religion of grace, Jesus dies for you uh, to wash away all of your sins. And with the religion of works, it demands your own blood and it's never going to be enough. And so that uh, it's just like uh, Peter says here, you know, all, all you're left with, unless you have Jesus, unless you have his blood and his righteousness and his life, uh, it re- your personal relationship with God will always be one of fear and despair. This also applies, though, he says, with invisible Christianity, those who seek to establish good relations through their own works. So you can you can give lip service to the blood of Jesus. You can give lip service to the, to the triune God and still believe that you have to climb to him, that you have to, oh, I don't know, uh, put together a set of meritorious works uh, yeah. by which you would uh, avoid purgatory. Well, that's right. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, at first you're thinking that uh, Peeper is describing a, a bifurcated world, you know, of two different parts that is clearly seen on the one side, the Christians, and the other side, it's clearly seen the pagans. But Peeper says, well, look out. This actually happens within Christendom, as he calls it, right? The place where people uh, 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 ha- uh, maybe uh, they, they speak the words of the creed, but when it comes down to it, uh, uh, what they uh, confess in their canons and their doctrines and the teachings or whatever the words are coming out of their megachurch pastor, uh, they, Peter says you will find a religion of works that sadly, even though they call themselves Christian, uh, they don't have the full fruits of the vicarious satisfaction that Jesus died in their place. And so that works are totally taken out of their hands when it comes uh, to their standing before the judgment seat of God. Thank goodness as Lutherans, this isn't a problem for us. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It is. It's an amazing sort of thing that, you know, we talked about this at the very beginning that the Lord says, hey, fear, love and trust in me. And the devil says, all right, I'll give you a million things to fear, love and trust in instead of God. And But the, there's a few of those things, those idols that rise to the top. And on the very top of the list is always our own works for the pagan, for the Christian. It's just it's innate in our human nature. The uh, people will call it uh, uh, later the, the rule of the flesh. Basically, the native religion of our fallen flesh is to trust in works. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, you ask people, hey, you going to go to heaven? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, why? Well, because I'm a good person, because I do a lot of good things. It's a, it's an amazing thing how that idol of works rises to the top of the list of the things that we trust in. Uh, and, and that happens for all people across the board, which is why the law has to thunder against us to tear down that, the chief of the idols. This might be speculation. Uh, you can tell me if you think it is, but I, I've always kind of kind of thought this, that it is not without reason that we have this religion you speak of, that we, we naturally are inclined to believe that the answer to the problems of the world is for me to do something about those problems, because this is what we did in the first place to break the world. Adam and Eve are sitting here, and it's, she's named woman at the time, of course, but Adam and woman are sitting here in this absolutely perfect world. It's good. It's very good, God says. And they think... I can make it better. Here, yeah. let me do this. <laughs> and and right. they try to make it better by their works. And That's we've been right. in the same problem ever since. Now that we broke it, we're like, oh, it's like the kid who breaks the dish, right? And they try to glue it back together. And they're like trying to hold it up as propped up with like chopsticks or something to keep it all together. But it's just, it's never going back. Our works cannot undo what's been done. Another image would be you take a bite out of an apple, right? You can spit the bite out, don't chew it, and try to try to fit that bite back into the apple. It's still not going to be whole again. And so we, we need a new apple. The devil, uh, with his temptation to Adam and to Eve, was that you think that this is paradise, but in fact, there is something more to aspire to, namely that you can become like God, right? So the the, the devil's lie is that the, uh, uh, the complete... Uh, uh, beauty and and joy of creation uh, is actually uh, not enough, that they ought to see themselves as more than the creatures that God has has made them. And so it's like they take this perfect gift of creation and then they think to themselves, well, I bet it needs an east wing over here or something like that. And when after it's broken and they have the results of sin, it's not so much this is the new state of nature, but rather uh, that they are seeing corruption for the very first time. You know, it's falling apart, it's decaying, but it's not as if it's uh, it's not as if this is something that's inherent to their nature, but rather it is uh, the desire to to fill up uh, what's lacking God's creation through works. That's a mark of our cor- corruption. But being corrupted themselves, looking on the corruption falling apart around them, they have no recourse to understand that the works which broke the world can't be the works that fixed the world. Or to say this another way, and this is kind of a mystery, how did a good thing 
choose to be evil. That's that's the, uh, the, the crux telegorum, the unanswerable question. We don't know how Adam fell. But we do know that it, it more or less is impossible in the inverse, and that is an evil thing cannot, by definition, choose to be good. Even if it were to try, it would do so in an evil way. It's evil. And that, that's what we are now. So here we are, evil, thinking, I got to be good. I got to be good. But all we can do is come up with the wrong way to be good, which is to go back to ourselves rather than to the source of goodness, who is the Lord who made us. Yeah, you know what? This is great because works are good. Uh Works are can be holy and righteous and, and precious in God's sight, but never apart from faith. Never apart from faith. And unless you have Jesus and, and his reconciliation, unless you have justification in his blood, then whatever you put forward as a work, as, as you know, wonderful as people may say it is, uh, they'll give you awards for it. You know, they do this all the time. Apparently, I've never gotten an award for a good work, but, you know, that's probably your, your supervisor's but, problem. Just not uh, taking yeah, care of his employees but, enough. But but even the smallest of works that are done in faith, right before God's sight uh, are precious. Why? Because they're not trying to reconcile God. They're purely out of thanksgiving. They're purely out of joy for the fact that Jesus has died for this sinner, you know. Uh, uh, and so we, uh, it, it's good to see that the only way that works are good and precious and 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 uh, worthwhile in God's sight is only because of faith and only because of, of Jesus and, and, and he doing his work first to make us right with God. This is what puts the vicarious in, in the vicarious satisfaction and highlights the importance of it, that it's, it must be the work of another to make things right. We can't do it. And, and in fact, it, because in Adam's fall, the entire creation fell, that it's going to have to be um, something, in fact, that begins apart from creation to re to bring restoration here, so that the Lord now becomes incarnate, but He is God, uh, the the Lord, the Eternal One, the Eternal Begotten of the Father, who comes down into this fallen creation uh, to bring this restoration. So it 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 there's nothing that we can do uh, to to fix the brokenness that is both in us and in the world. Uh, it has to be another. So any attempt to to fix it on ourselves is going to be a doomed and failed thing. It's going to end in, as Peeper says here, despair and hopelessness. Well, and under a curse. And, and that's where uh, Peeper now goes with quoting Galatians 3, verse 10. And uh, Pastor Flammy, as you were talking about there as well, the goodness of works um, being something different from what Paul's talking about here and kind of trying to, to wrap our minds around that, that as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. And he doesn't mean as many people as do good works are cursed, right? As if good were bad. It's not like that. But if you are under this belief, this faith not in God, but faith in yourself via your works, that is the curse. And from that flow all the effects of the curse, like sweat from your brow, like pain and childbearing and in relationships with each other and like death. Yeah, as you were trying, as you were saying a little bit earlier, it all swings on you know where you fall on the first commandment. You know, this isn't a question of, a of whether or not you're doing works. This is a question of not whether or not you trust in those works to uh, earn God's favor, right? And those people who put their faith in works, those are the people who are under the works of the law, and they are the ones who are cursed. And it, and you know, you would think that well, and maybe they're working their way up towards God's favor, even if they can't reach it. No. Uh, to be cursed is to actually uh, get from God his anger and his displeasure uh, because he desires you to be reconciled not for your own sake, but for the sake of his son, Jesus. It's it, it's interesting what Pastor Flammy said there, that it's faith that puts us under. Uh, so Paul here is talking about being under the works of the law. If we trust in our works, we are under the works of the law, and that puts us under the curse of God. It's trying to do for ourselves what God has both said and promised that he would do and and told us that all he alone can do. But when we have faith in Christ, we are under Christ, not under the law. So now we stand alongside the law as friends of the law. That's how Paul will talk about the Christians, as friends of the law, not servants or slaves of the law, so that there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law cannot tell us where we'll spend eternity. The law cannot tell us what God thinks about us. That's what Christ does by his death and his resurrection. So now being being rescued from the curse of the law, being rescued from the condemnation of the law, being rescued from the coercion of the law, the Christian can treat the law as a friend. And but by faith in Christ, Paul tells us in, in Romans 15, that the Lord uses our good works to put Satan under our feet so that now he's using our good works to, to bring to an end the kingdom of the devil and death 
and bring about his own kingdom. It's really quite stunning. But this is all by faith in Christ and not by faith in our works, by faith in our goodness or by trust in Moses or the Ten Commandments. Well, we're really talking about here without using the jargon, which is kind of the common parlance in the Missouri Synod, is what C.F.W. Walther, the first president of the Missouri Synod, called the proper distinction between law and gospel, which wasn't to say that the law is a bad thing or that the gospel is the only good thing, but that they are inherently different things and they have different places, uh, different places in your life, different things that they do so that we, we don't really trust in the law, even though we believe that it's true. I, should, I shouldn't even say that, though. We don't trust in the law to be the mediator of our relation, our existential connection to God. I trust in the law to tell me what good and evil is in the creation, how I ought to act and all these things, but but I don't trust in it to be my, my savior. Whereas this gospel, this who is Jesus, what he's done thing, that's what I trust in to be my salvation. So I, am I right that Luther talks about this, that that the law is kind of like a junkyard dog uh, because of our sin. And you, every once in a while, you just have to put it in its place. You got to say, no, you don't belong here between me and Jesus. That's not what you do. But at the same time, you have to go and like make use of that dog uh, when you're dealing with the world around you. Yeah. Uh, to make use of that dog, <laughs> it's like the, the office of the preacher is to bring into the ears of the sinners, the, the footsteps of God in the garden. Right. Uh, that, uh, uh, that's right. I mean, so the law, when we talk about the law, we're not by, uh, talking about uh, sort of an existential power that is standing in opposition to gospel or something like that. We're actually talking about the good and holy will of God. Uh, we're talking about the, the things that God finds pleasing and the things that God finds good and, and what is required of his creation. Uh, and it, it's not just given to us in an abstract concept. It's actually given to us in, in words, the words of the Ten Commandments, which is why we drill them into our kids' uh, brains by, you know, saying them every day with them. Uh, that we should have no other gods, you know, that we should uh, uh, also that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Yeah. So n even if the law is good in and of itself, because it requires uh, holy and righteous things from creation, this is back to our point earlier. The fact is, as creatures, uh, uh, apart from Christ, we are corrupt. Uh, our wickedness uh, is so deep within us that it is impossible. It is completely impossible to actually do a, a, a good work according to the law. We could trick ourselves into thinking that we have kept one of the commandments and that it, maybe, I don't know, I've never stolen or anything like that. But just like in the story of Jesus talking with the rich young man who is applying for uh, apostleship or something like that, uh, uh, Jesus proves to him that his great love of riches uh, uh, shows that, uh, that even though he has convinced himself that he is uh, uh, a good man according to the law, still deep within his heart, the corruption is still lingering there, and that corrupts everything that he does. I think when you mentioned the law not being an existential power earlier, that's a that's a, a golden nugget to kind of look at here because a lot of the language that I hear amongst our church body uh, talking about the law treats it as if it is this idea that isn't the Ten Commandments themselves, right? It's it's this other thing, this law which accuses you, this acu or even that it's just it is accusation. So that I just say you're a sinner, and that that's it, uh, the same thing as as God's law. When I think uh, our theology and, and Scripture and our confessions teach us that it's it's the law itself that does that. And so one way of saying what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is that it's not talk about the law that actually prepares us to understand the gospel that actually exposes us and, and brings the footsteps of God into our life so that we're we're fleeing to the cross. Talk about the law never does that. Even though talk about the law is useful for explaining the law, it's the law itself that does that. Those those Ten Commandments that so rarely get defined and that uh, then applied directly to our lives. That's right. We ha always have to be aware of abstractions and we can't make the, just like we dare not make the gospel into an abstraction, like the gospel is good news, like it's any good news. No, it's a very specific good news of the promise of the forgiveness of sins by the death of Jesus. So the law, we dare not make the law into an abstraction uh, it, because when we make it into an abstraction, then it becomes misused. So the flesh will misuse the law to, to, 
to make ourselves pleasing to God or trust in it, make it into an idol, to exalt ourselves or to, to, to damn ourselves and condemn ourselves. The devil would use an abstract idea of the law to tell us that we don't need to be afraid of God or that we can only be afraid of God. This is uh, Luther in his very famous sermon, which becomes the basis of Walther's law and gospel, his, his New Year's Eve sermon on Galatians 4 and the distinction between law and gospel. Or, talks about how the Lord has given the law a very specific vocation. It tells us how we ought to love God and love our neighbor, and that's it. But the law does not have the vocation of telling us where to spend eternity. That belongs to Jesus. Mm-hmm. The law does not have the vocation of, uh, of settling our conscience. That's the job of Jesus. So the devil tries to push the law past the bounds of its vocation to do what it was not given by God to do. Or even to take those abstractions like you're talking about, like law and gospel, and to make them tools for self-justification, that, that I would actually use the phrase or the idea of law and gospel to stop from having to repent or uh, to use it to to teach works righteousness, right? That that somehow you need to manage to memorize this set and this set of things in this certain order, and then you can go to Lord's Supper, and now you never have to come to church again, right? Uh, as if the jargon is what saves us. Yeah, salvation by cliche. <laughs> we, you know, we become, we identify ourselves with some sort of orthodox cliches, and then we use that to placate our conscience. No, that's, that's also a very great danger. And it's one of the, the great benefits that we always, I mean, Peeper, He's he will he will crush those idols of the cliches. Uh, we, there's a danger that we would take them and use them to create the cliches. That's also a danger. But then he points us to the words of the scriptures, so that it's not like we uh, it's not like um, law and gospel is some sort of paradigm or some sort of system or some sort of program. It's uh, uh, and then we go to the Bible with the law gospel goggles, and then we are able to. To see it there, no uh, law. The scriptures are law and gospel. The Lord speaks to us with threats and promises, uh, with instruction, uh, and with uh, and with the blood of Jesus, His gifts, and and so they that this understanding of the distinction between law and gospel runs out of the scriptures. It's not something that we bring to the scriptures, uh, and in order to justify or try to escape uh, the reading of the text. I mean, the devil is an expert at confusing law and gospel. He uses the gospel, you know, I mean, just on an everyday sort of example, when we come up to some sort of temptation to sin, the devil will come and preach the gospel, not to forgive sins, but to excuse sin. You know, oh, it's fine. Jesus doesn't matter. He's really a nice guy. Remember all that dying for you stuff. It'll be fine. Go ahead and sin. And then after the sin is committed, the devil comes thundering with Moses. Oh, how could you call yourself a Christian? You've done that. Now, that's the devil preaching law and gospel, uh, but in precisely the wrong way using it as an abstraction to excuse sin and to and to damn the sinner. Our many sacrifices do not in the least alter our personal relation to God. For these sacrifices are not offered to God, but to devils, Peeper says. The Christian's personal relation to God, however, is of an entirely different nature. Through faith in the reconciliation affected by Christ, the Christian knows God as dear Father, has a good conscience, the assurance of grace, and enjoys the hope of eternal life, which has God has promised to all believers in Christ. And that is not jargon. That is not cliche. That is a word from God to you. In Jesus, God has reconciled you to himself. He has purchased and won you from sin, from death, and from the power of the devil. He has placed you into his kingdom. And he has even more precious promises to share with you in holy baptism and the supper and the life of the world to come. This is why it's so important to understand how different this is from that religion of works that all the other spiritualities of the world teach, pointing you back to yourself where fear and despair reign as opposed to Christ where hope is everlasting. My guests have been Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Brian Flammy of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Thank you for being with me today, guys. You got it. My pleasure. You're listening to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news, and we certainly hope that you heard that good news in this last hour. Cross Defense is underwritten for you by the Luther Academy. You can check them out at at lutheracademy.com. Get in touch with them and let them know how much you appreciate all of their work, including bringing you cross-defense here on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Until next time.